The text this morning is taken from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. And coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumbled because they were disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. What I'd like to do with these few verses in focusing in on verses 6 to 8 is to draw out the main point as I understand it and then uh, encourage your faith with it and apply it to the situation we find ourselves in, uh, including tonight's gathering where we'll talk about the organ. There are relevant things here. Last week, let me let me put the verses six to eight in the context of last week in verses four and five. It was a, a beckoning from the Lord to us as a congregation last week to come to Jesus, come to Jesus and be built yourselves into living stones to be a spiritual house for us, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. And the key was coming to Christ, a tasting the kindness of the Lord, yearning for the Lord, banking on his word, feasting on his goodness. When that happens and you're united to Christ in that way, you become a living stone, just like he's the living, chosen, precious stone. And the house of God for his dwelling begins to be built. That was last week. Christ, the key to becoming the people of God. Now, what happens in verses 6 to 8 is uh, three quotations of Old Testament texts, two from Isaiah, one from Psalm 118, to explain where this stone imagery comes from. Why is he calling Jesus a stone and a living stone and a chosen stone and a precious stone? But the quotation of these three Old Testament texts in verses 6 to 8 is not simply to kind of kind of list them off and say, there's the source, but rather to put them together in a certain way and interpret them with insertions of his own in a certain way that a powerful point is made about the triumph of God and the validity of faith. So that's what I really want you to hear. I'm not so concerned that you see an Old Testament and New Testament link as I am that you see the spiritual point He's drawing out of these Old Testament texts in verses 6 to 8. So let's take verse 6. He quotes Isaiah 28, 16, and he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, that's Christ, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. Let's just stop there for a minute. Now, the point there is not merely to say, 
Here's where I get the stone imagery. That would be a real empty interpretation of this verse. The point here is, if you, and I just hope that every unbeliever in this room is listening right now real carefully. If you trust the living stone, the chosen stone, the precious stone called Jesus, whom God set in the world, You will never be disappointed. You will never be ashamed. If you stand on this stone and build your life on this stone, no storm will ever blow you over or destroy your life. If you hide behind this stone, no enemy can ever destroy you. If you stand on the stone as your truth in life, you can never, in the end, Be proven wrong. This is a verse absolutely full of hope to people who will say, all right, maybe up until this day I have looked at the stone and I've just tossed it away. I haven't thought it was worth banking my life on. But today I will stand on the stone. I will cling to the stone. I will crawl under and hide under the stone. I will count the stone my diamond worth more than all jewels in life. When that happens, It could happen right now while I'm talking. When that happens, you will never again be put to shame. And I just can't help but think that if you knew a way this morning, if God Almighty, who knows all things, would communicate, as I believe he's doing in this text, to you a way which if you walked in that way, you would never be put to shame and you would never be disappointed. I just can't imagine anybody would say no to that way. Nobody wants to be disappointed. Nobody wants to be ashamed. And Almighty God, through His Apostle, is saying, there is a stone. And if you stand on the stone and hide under the stone and take the stone as your treasure, never will you be ashamed again. What an awesome promise. So that's why he's grasping at these great Old Testament words of God. Not just to show where he gets the imagery, because the promise themselves are so rich for our faith. If you trust Christ this morning, hide in Christ, take your stand with Christ, you will never be ashamed for eternity. Death can't shame you. The devil can't shame you. Circumstances can't ultimately disappoint you. Christ will triumph in you and for you. Now, here's my question. When I got to this point in my thinking and meditating and enjoyment on this text, I asked, Why didn't he just jump from verse 7a, the first part of verse 7, where he draws out the inference, so to you who believe he's precious, this preciousness is yours, this never being put to shame preciousness is yours, why didn't he just jump to verse 9 and say, and you are therefore a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and move on? Why did he, in the middle of verse 7, get on to the negative? Why not just leave it positive? If you believe on the stone, you'll never be ashamed. Instead, in the middle of verse 7, he feels some inner impulse from the Holy Spirit to deal with the people who don't believe. The negative side, the downside of the stone. Here's the stone. Some people stand on it, hide under it, count it a diamond, and others go wham right over the stone. And he feels the need to talk about that. 
So I'm going to just talk for a minute about that and try to figure out why he feels that way. What lesson, what positive, faith-building, encouraging lesson for the family of faith at Bethlehem comes out of looking at the negative side of unbelief? Well, he says, verse 7 in the middle there, But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very corner stone. Let's just stop there for a minute. God takes his son, uses the image of a stone, he puts him in the world, he puts him in Zion, he puts him in Jerusalem and among the Jews. And there's a great rejection that happens. Some stumble over this stone. Remember what Simeon said to Mary when she saw little Jesus. This child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. Some stumble and fall. Some stand on him and, and with him. But what's, what's the point here? What's the, what's the gist of that verse? The gist of it, I think, is... If you reject the stone, God doesn't reject the stone, and it gets put exactly where he wants it. So he sets the stone out there, Jesus, and in God's mind, it's chosen, and it's precious, and it's going to go right into the corner of the church, which he will build and infallibly bring to glorious fulfillment. But some people look at the stone, and they say, "Uh, crucify him. Or, he has a demon. Or, I don't believe he's who he says he is. In all kinds of forms. And they reject the stone. But the verse says, the rejected stone, anyway, in spite of that rejection, becomes the corner. The head of the corner. Now, what's the point? The point is, you can't beat him. You can't effectively ruin his purpose. If you reject him, you make a big mistake, and you stumble, and you fall, but he gets picked up and put in. We might betray him. We might deny him. We might forsake him. We might put a crown of thorns on him. We might spit on him. We might hit him with rods. We might cloak his face with a bag and punch him and say, prophesy, we might crucify him, we might bury him, get him out of here so I can build my own house. And you know what happens? Three days later, he's coming out. God takes him out and he puts him in heaven, upholds the universe by the word of his power, makes purification for sins, fulfills the promise, I will build my church. And all those people who thought they were triumphing over Christ and his stone come to naught. So the point of bringing in the negative is because it's positive. Right? The point in mentioning what happens to those who reject the stone is to say to us who don't reject the stone, don't fret yourself over the triumphs, the temporary triumphs of the goddess. Don't fret yourself over those who reject the stone or spurn him. He will be the corner. Even unbelief cannot triumph over God's purposes for his son. That's verse 7. The same point, I believe, the same positive, faith-building, triumphant point is made more shockingly 
and theologically controversially in verse 8. Read that now. A stone, he becomes now for unbelievers a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this, and you'll notice in the NASB, the word doom there is in italics, which means that's their interpretation. They just kind of stick that in. It isn't necessary. And to this, they were also appointed. To this stumbling and to this disobedience, they were also appointed. Which I take to mean that the last of the thread unto which we hang in our self-reliance is severed. Namely, the thread that says in boasting independence and self-reliance and autonomous self-determination, well, if God Almighty has a purpose for me to believe in His stone and to be a part of His house, I will now frustrate the purposes of God, and I will reject His purposes for me, and I will disbelieve His word, and I will disobey His commandments, and I will show that God does not get the last say in my life, and I will be triumphant over the purposes of God for me. To which Peter says, over that life will be written, to this you were. You thought you were opposing God in your own self-sustained, self-determining willpower. And you found at the end of the day that in your opposition to His Son, you were serving His purpose. Just witness all the people that nailed Him to the cross. Was it the will of God that they nail him to the cross sinfully like that? It's an awesome thought. The point of verse 8, with all the mystery behind it and all the unanswered questions, the point of verse 8 is when you reject God's Word and God's Son, you fulfill God's purpose. You will never be able to rise above God and say, ha, at least in my case, you fail. Never will any proud, damned sinner ever be able to say that. God does not lose in the unbelief of people. God loses never. He is God and does in heaven according to his good pleasure. The point of this text, I think, for us at Bethlehem right now, is God is building his church and he will not fail. He will not fail us. If we reject his way, we cannot destroy his plan. C.S. Lewis said, we all serve God inevitably. 
But it makes a difference whether you serve him like Judas or like John. God is triumphant in belief and he's triumphant in unbelief. God is triumphant when the stone is accepted. He's triumphant when the stone is rejected. God is triumphant in believing and unbelieving, in good and evil. God is not 50% loser and 50% winner. He is always triumphant and always winning. Those who think they frustrate his designs only find that in the end they have wrought them. Even Satan. Witness 2 Corinthians 12. Paul, given a thorn in the flesh, called what? A minister of Satan. Why? So that I might not boast too much in my revelations, but might be humbled because when I am weak, then am I strong. Satan serves sanctification. He has no ultimate goals that he can achieve. He is the lackey of God Almighty in this church and everywhere else. And what he achieves, he achieves for God's ultimate purposes. That's the message out of this text for us. God is at work in these days at Bethlehem to do stunning and glorious things for the good of his church. And I want to close by reading you some testimonies to that effect. I I have never gotten so much mail in such a period of time in my life as in these last three weeks. And I thank many of you for these. Many of them are addressed to me and the elders. Many are coming from pastors around the country. Others are coming from visitors who were here. And I just, I can't keep this for myself because this is the work of God. And you need to know what God is doing here. Many of you know what God is doing in your own lives and some of it's too deep and too private that needs to be shared. And I can't share some of the letters because they asked me not to, but, but these are public letters and I want you to be encouraged by them. February 15. I am struck by the spiritual maturity and godliness that I have observed because of what has happened and now it has been hand, and how it has been handled. Things are beginning to seem more real to me. Sin seems more real to me. Spiritual maturity seems more real to me. Prayer seems more real. The possibility of church unity seems more real. God, while no less unfathomable, seems more real. I wrote to you, Pastor John, about a year and a half ago, listing five things that I was looking for in a church. I concluded by saying that I was beginning to sense that I had found what I had been looking for. Today, there is no doubt. Yes, I'm baffled and grieved and torn and saddened by what has come to light. But I am glad that it has come to light. I do not want in any way to minimize the sin that has taken place. First Samuel 2 and the judgment on Eli and Eli's sons, Ichabod over the house, has added much to my soberness and fear, as has Acts 5, 1 to 10. But at the same time, I have seen God's loving and painful discipline begin to take effect. I have discerned and have been overwhelmed by a spirit of humbleness, truthfulness, brokenness, gentleness, fear of God, love manifested throughout the body in general and particularly in the elders. Oh, how I have longed to be a part of such a church. Oh, how wonderful it will be when the bridegroom has finished purifying his bride. February 16. Satan doesn't need to attack lukewarm health, wealth, and prosperity churches. He needed to infiltrate Bethlehem. The church's handling of the crises 
is biblical and God has begun a work here, miracles and healings. I know of two instances where visitors on the 13th were profoundly reached. The service last Sunday, full of prayer and worship and song, and your words of biblical wisdom from Revelation was both a healing balm and a call for introspection and repentance. God will forgive and heal and work it all out for our good. Here's a dentist from Indiana, a visitor. I don't have any idea who he is. We were able to witness love for God and his people, hatred for sin, the desire and the beginnings of God's grace, of reconciliation, of a fallen brother, brokenness, dependency on God. We witnessed the manifestation of the Spirit of God in his people. I don't know everything that happened, but it was obvious that hearts were broken. Recrimination will probably come. And maybe that is good, as it gives the body an opportunity to undergo sifting out. Maybe very little good will come out of what your congregation has experienced. God knows. I just want to say, as a brother in Christ, that it was very apparent to us that the ministry occurring at Bethlehem has the mark of God. We could see him in the people, the elders, the pastor. Thank you for the blessing of allowing us to worship with you in such a difficult time. February 16, another visitor. I hope you won't misunderstand what I'm about to say, as I am having difficulty putting my feelings into words, dated February 16. Though... Last Sunday was a dark day for Bethlehem. Still, as I shared in the service, I felt so privileged to be there. At that moment, I knew there was nowhere else on earth that I would rather have been than at Bethlehem Baptist Church. It was a fearful and wonderful thing to be in the presence of a God who is holy and pure and righteous and just. So much of what we Christians say and do reflects our lighthearted attitude towards God. We talk about Him as though He was a chum or a buddy, and so rarely do we consider the side of Him that despises iniquity and won't tolerate sin. I was greatly humbled to sit among the people at Bethlehem on Sunday and be reminded of who God really is. Secondly, I was deeply encouraged to witness the corporate attitude of grief and confession not only from your staff and elders, but from the entire congregation. Though we considered the sin of one, God's searchlight examined my heart as well. God must love Bethlehem Baptist very much. He could have left this sin undisclosed so that it would have grown and festered, and yet he apparently chose to have it revealed so that he could cleanse, forgive, heal, make the church whole once again. You have a wonderful fellowship at Bethlehem. And though we don't belong to your church, we have a special love for it. Here's a member talking, February 10. The church I grew up in was fraught with sin. Even as a middle school and high school student, I was aware of an ongoing affair in the church that was not acknowledged or addressed for years. When it finally was, no discipline took place, nothing changed. The affair continued more secretly. I know everyone in that church was affected by that cancer and many other cancers growing unhindered among us. That is why I'm so grateful to God for your willingness to risk your personal friendships with Dean, risk Bethlehem's excellent music ministry, risk the reputation of our church, risk the congregation turning against you, and probably risk much more. Thank you for your honesty and commitment to truth and godliness. I have been overwhelmed in these meetings 
with the love I have for you, the leaders of this church. One more. An open letter to the, to the elders just this week. Please be encouraged that your pain and prayers have not been in vain because the Lord is at work in our hearts as well as the hearts of hundreds of others at Bethlehem as a result of this season of humiliation. I think that's a real good phrase. Season of humiliation. Your sensitivity and obedience to the Lord has been made evident and all your decisions regarding disciplinary matters have been vindicated. Oh, here's one. I wanted to read an example of a pastor, the pastors around the country who are writing to encourage us. Um, this is from Portage, Michigan. My words to you, the rest of the staff, the elders and the body, are come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. So let us press on to know the Lord. His coming forth is as certain as the dawn, and He will come to us like rain, like the spring rains that water the earth. And He says, As certain as the dawn of this day is the certainty that God will go forth and bring the spring rains and comfort and restoration and healing and renewal at Bethlehem. Saddened and sobered, yet praying with and for you in great hope. We don't have too many kids in this service, but I just got to say a word to kids. And when I did, I had an outpouring at the end of the last service. Of, uh, when, when children give me things at the end of the service or send them to me in the mail, I have a court board over my desk at home, just above my computer monitor, where I put to-do things and other things and uh, these things go on the board for a season until they have their due effect upon me. So if you're a kid out there and you think you can't minister to the pastor, wrong. You can. For example, this, this little valentine written on the 14th day after painful day says, Jesus loves Bethlehem. And they sent it to me in the mail. And then at the end of the service, of course, I got... I got letters like, here's a picture of Jesus on the cross. I love you. I died for you. Jesus from Lindsay. God loves you. Do not be discouraged. God is with us. And then a picture of, of the church with many, many, many windows. <laughs> Everybody can minister. Ministry is brokering the grace of God that's invested in your life in every life. Now, I close with just a comment about tonight and, and what we're about in this text. Um, the staff went away and I felt as I was leaving that uh, a couple of weeks passed, that the sun was coming out a little bit, that the, the way was broadening and, and uh, there was a future out there. And I felt like emotionally I turned a corner and there's this monster in the street called The Entanglement of the Organ with Seven Years of Deception and Adultery. And we spent a lot of time wrestling with the spiritual implications of all of that and four hours with the elders yesterday wrestling with it. And uh, I want you to hear our heart tonight. I want you to come and just listen as we share where we are on that issue. All of the staff 
ten of us, including part-time pastors, and our wives agree on what's going to be shared tonight. And they're going to sit up here just to symbolize that agreement. All the elders who were there, 11 out of the 13 elders there yesterday, agree with what's going to be shared tonight. We need seriously to take into account the, the burden that is being felt and then talk and wrestle together for a while tonight and perhaps some more on Wednesday about what God might be saying to us. The point of First Peter in this text, verses 6 to 8, is Jesus will not be defeated. If we, if we receive him, we participate in the victory and we'll never be ashamed. Whatever side of a legitimate disagreement you stand on, you'll never be ashamed if you're in Jesus. If you reject Jesus, you can't win. He will win, but you can't win. And so I just close by asking all of you to trust him. Trust him for this issue. Trust him for uh, salvation, if you have never trusted him before. Three weeks ago, God did a miracle I did not expect him to do. I knew he'd do something, but I did not expect that on February 7, at about 9 or 10 in the morning, God would touch Dean and bring him to confession. And I thought we were going to have to battle this thing through on the basis of circumstantial evidences and varying assessments. And God spared us that by a work of power that was simply awesome to me. That's what I expect to happen tonight and tomorrow morning. I feel like we're kind of at the Red Sea. We've got Egyptians behind us, and we've got ocean in front of us, the sea in front of us. And humanly, they just looked at Moses and said, What are you doing? How'd you get us into this mess? And uh, Moses looks up and he says, Yeah, what am I doing? What, what are you going to do about this? And he said, Well, you just watch. And he split the sea. And I'll tell you about some sea-splitting ideas I have tonight, but let's pray. Lord, I pray that this family here would feel like family in spite of controversy. And I pray that we would come back filled with prayer from this afternoon. We'd be burning the lines in prayer this afternoon. I pray that that they would pray for me. I have to go speak at a missions conference over in East St. Paul this afternoon at 4. So I just ask those of you who think of it to give, ask the Lord to give me an anointing for that ministry and get me back here on time. And I pray, Lord, that you would split the sea and do a unifying, saving, upbuilding, triumphant work in this church that takes all the monsters out of the streets, spreads them wide, shines with your sun upon them, and takes us into this decade with glorious hope and with the greater, the greatest strength for 2,000 by 2,000 we've ever known. Thank you, Father, for the truth of this passage and the triumph of your son. In his name I pray.